0: It. Uh, here we are at the end of Numbers. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me uh, one last time to the book of Numbers. Today, chapter 36, uh, as we see uh, one of the shorter chapters, but uh, meeting again some of the characters that we have seen earlier in the narrative, in the history of God's work with his people. These faithful daughters of Zelophehad that we last encountered in chapter 27 now show up again. Uh, at the end of the book in chapter 36. Today, chapter 36, verses 1 through 13. Before we read this passage together, let's go to the Lord in prayer and seek his blessing upon our study. Let's pray. O gracious and righteous, glorious Lord, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would sink it deep into the hearts of your people, Uh, That we would come to know and believe the care that you have for your people. Uh, That we would know and believe the the blessings that you have given to your church. And maybe even that those who are not yet a part of your church would be drawn in, uh, would be gathered together with the full number and wait for the promise of your possession. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the word of God as we find it in Numbers chapter 36. The heads of the fathers of the houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs, the heads of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. They said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. But if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe in which they marry, so it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added the inheritance of the tribe in which they marry, and their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. And Moses commanded the people of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. For Mahlah, Tirzah, Hogla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, if, uh, if the book of Numbers, uh, the end of it at least, feels a little anticlimactic to you, there are a few good reasons for that. <laughs> Uh, The first is that the end of the book of Numbers isn't actually the end of the story. Uh, It's been six months or so now. We started this study together with a group of people gathered at the base of Mount Sinai, looking forward to the promised inheritance that God was going to give them. And even though the journey throughout these chapters has taken them awfully close to the promised land, they still aren't in it yet. In contemporary language, that means that the message of this chapter is to be continued. These are the laws, it says in verse 13, that the Lord gave his people in the land of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Laws primarily about what to do with the promised land, even though they're not yet in the promised land. So that way, really, it fits with The flow of the entire book of Numbers, the whole book of Numbers, has been looking forward to what God was going to do for his people, even though the book of Numbers never gets to what God was going to do for his people. So, if it feels anticlimactic, it is because, well, it is. This is not the end of the story. Far more importantly though, uh, even the end of the story isn't the end of the story. You can read the sequel for yourselves later if you'd like. Deuteronomy is right there on the next page, and it gives us 34 more chapters that both begin and end in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. You can keep on reading, of course. Finally, in Joshua, you get to the conquest. Finally, you get to the promised land and and taking the inheritance for the people themselves. Finally, they arrive, but that book also ends with a cliffhanger. It also ends with a challenge to be faithful to the Lord in the future, and then the history just keeps on going. It keeps on going through the time of the judges, through the reign of the kings. It keeps on going through idolatry and through disobedience and through exile and through restoration. And by the close of the old covenant, God's people are back in the land. But you know they're still waiting, aren't they? waiting for the end of the story and the promises that God had given to their forefathers so long ago. By the time we get to the New Testament and into the Gospels, there is a ray of hope. We find in Mark's Gospel there that the time is at hand. We find there that the kingdom has come. And you read on through those histories of Jesus, and by the time we get to Calvary, we hear the Savior on the cross cry definitively, Tetelestai it is finished, it's done, it's over. Wouldn't you know it, he shows back up three days later. (laughs) He's got a few more things to say to the people. Forty days after that, he's sending out his disciples, and he's telling them to make more of themselves, more disciples. Two thousand years on, and we're still spreading the gospel, Lord willing. And we're still repeating that cliffhanger that comes at the close of the book of Revelation. Amen, come Lord Jesus. All of that to say that, well, we still haven't gotten to the end of the story. Really, Numbers fits very well in with the rest of the scriptures, because not only Numbers, but all of the scriptures are always looking with a forward-facing focus to what God will do for his people, though we haven't quite gotten there yet. And so perhaps it's good to end our time in numbers with some unfinished business. Because that is where we learn to trust in what God is going to do for his people. Now you notice, perhaps, that in the beginning of our passage, maybe you you recognize here a familiar struggle, one that you go through. It's the struggle of learning to believe whether God's word can be trusted. Learning to believe whether life will actually work out if you live it in the way that God has told you is best To live it, verse 2, the heads of the tribes of Gilead come near to the leaders of Israel, and they come with a question. They have found, they believe to be a potential loophole in the commandments of God. Specifically, they cite two direct commandments that they are afraid might be in conflict with one another. Verse 2, they said, the Lord commanded my Lord, here's the first one, to give the land for inheritance by lot. The people of Israel. And number two, and my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. Now, as a side note, perhaps, uh, with the mention of these two specific commands, we actually have quite a neat little ending for the book of Numbers. Right. Verse 13 says, these are the commands the Lord gave the people in Moab. And actually, that plural there, the commands, intends us to look backward, not just over this chapter, but over everything the Lord has said through Moses since the time that the people came and settled down in the plains next to the Jordan. And in fact, if you went back to that very point in the story, when God began giving statutes in the land of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, if you went back there, you would find that these two statutes are the very first commands that the Lord gives in this place. You can find it in Numbers chapter 26. It happened after they came in, and after the feet of Sihon and Og, after those incidents of uh, of Balaam and the Baal of Peor, and then in 25, the Lord commands a census to be taken of the new generation, excuse me, chapter 26. He commands a census to be taken of the new generation, and there in chapter 26, verse 53, he says, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names divided by lot. Lot. And then at the mention of dividing the names and the inheritance, the daughters of Zelophehad speak up and they say, well, what about us? In other words, just as God's people are recounted and this new generation is reconstituted to go into the land, the very first issue to be settled is who's going to get it and who's going to be left out? And God's answer back then was no one is going to be left out. Not the widow, not the orphan, not even the memory of the man who died without sons. When God brings his people into the land that he's giving them, he's going to see that everyone has a share in this perpetual inheritance. Not even the least of God's promises will fall unfulfilled. To bring it back to chapter 36, the literary term is an inclusio, a pair of bookends mirror image of one another that that wrap around a larger body of text and gather it together into one neat, tidy little package. So we see that the issues that showed up in chapter 26 are again the issues that show up at the end of the story. So at the close of the sojourn beside the Jordan, the leaders of Gilead cite the word of the Lord, they quote him, and then they wonder out loud, but what happens If it doesn't turn out the way that God said it should go? What if circumstances outside our control conspire to take away the promises that God has made for His people? They're retreading things that they've gone over before, and that also is a familiar pattern in our spiritual lives. It feels a lot like when you're bouncing the baby. And she finally drifts off to sleep. And it feels like this wonderful accomplishment. And you tell yourself, you know, I bet I can set her down. And I can slip back into bed myself. And oh man, the the moment her head touches the mattress, she wakes up and she's crying all over again. And so you repeat the cycle. You scoop her up, you bounce the baby, you set her down. You scoop her up, you bounce the baby, you set her down. You rinse and repeat while you wait for the sun to come up. Well, our spiritual lives feel like that sometimes. The moment that we think we have finally put our unbelief to bed, it wakes up screaming and demanding to be dealt with. And What do we do? Well, we get frustrated by it. We get embarrassed over it. And people sit in the pastor's office and they wonder out loud why their sanctification still hasn't progressed to the point that the Christian life is light and easy the way that they are convinced it ought to be light and easy. Why hasn't it gotten any better than this yet? Of course, there could be some logical explanations, right? There could be an unrepentant sin that we're refusing to deal with. There could be some truth, some wonderful doctrine in God's Word that we are neglecting to embrace. Or it could also be the fact that the Spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Just like every generation of believers that's gone before us. And so what happens? We struggle to follow the same commands that the Lord has already given to us. We fight to believe the same blessings that he has pronounced already. We wrestle to hold on to the same old truths that, you know, we could have sworn we had believed by now. And over and over again, the same issues of our faith seem to resurface even after we thought we had buried them. Doesn't your faith ever seem like that? Maybe I'm the only one. I suppose... I could be alone, but then I know that I'm not because every time I open the Scriptures, I find God's people dealing with recurring spiritual issues all over again. I see it all through the pages of Scripture, struggling through unfinished business in their souls. In this case, here at the end of Numbers, it is the recurring question of, what if? What if God's promises don't work out the way that We thought they would. What if our inheritance slips through our fingers even though we did all the things that God told us to do? Their concern, you understand, had to do with the fact that tribal inheritance at this time went through the family of the husband. In any marriage relationship, the tribal inheritance went with the husband. And so there was a potential, I suppose, that these women might lose what the Lord had given them if they chose to marry outside of their tribal designations. The Lord had given them a safeguard. They mention it in verse 4. The Lord had given them the year of Jubilee. Once every 50th year, when all the slaves were to go free and all the debts were to be canceled and all the land was to be given back to the family that the Lord had given them, except the year of Jubilee dealt only with land that had been sold and not land that had been inherited. So when the leaders of Gilead came to Moses, you can almost hear the anxiety of their question. The Lord said we should handle it this this way, but what if it doesn't work out? Verses 3 and 4 repeat it two different ways, and and the order is reversed. Notice the language of adding and taking. Verse 3, if they marry the sons of other tribes, then their inheritance will be taken, it says, from the inheritance of our fathers. And in fact, it will be added into the tribe in which they marry. Verse 4, even at the year of the Jubilee, their inheritance will be added into the tribe in which they marry. It will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers. And as so often, the main point is right there in the middle at the end of verse 3. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. It might sound like a foreign concept to you. It might sound like some ancient issue, but it's the same struggle that you face every day. What if something happens? And what if someone screws up? And what if some unexpected circumstance somehow nullifies the promises of God? And what if everything he said he will do somehow fails to materialize for his people? What if? What if I love my neighbors the way the Bible tells me to, but in the end it means that they don't respect me anymore for my faith, they really just take advantage of me instead? What if... I trust my husband enough, and I trust the Lord enough to submit to the leadership of my husband, but in the end, he still makes those stupid decisions that I wish he wouldn't make. What if I confess my sins to the Lord, but even after I do, I still don't feel like my sins have been forgiven? It's the struggle of faith. Over and over again. Day after day, often covering the same ground that you thought you had gone over by now. It's a struggle of our faith. And into that struggle, the Lord speaks the blessing of his faithfulness. Now notice that when these leaders come to Moses, the Lord receives their question without chiding them. Verse 5, by the command of the Lord, Moses said to the people, the tribe of the people of Joseph is right. They're correct. They have evaluated the situation appropriately. Not by the way that the the Lord needed their uh, advice or counsel, not as though He hadn't foreseen this snag in the plan Himself, not as though He needed their detailed analysis to work out all of the issues. Calvin says that the Lord allowed himself to be questioned on matters of secondary importance in order that generations to come would acknowledge his fatherly indulgence. That is, he welcomed their question. Even though he already had the situation taken care of, his faithfulness didn't depend on this minor issue. And his sovereign rule over all things would certainly see that the faithfulness he promised would come to his people. Nevertheless, they came with their concerns. And the Lord does not slap their hands away like greedy little children reaching for a cookie jar. He receives their concerns. He hears them. He does not dismiss them. He simply acknowledges that Perhaps beneath the worry that they have about their future, they are anxious, but they're anxious in the right direction, actually. Their heart for the promises of God is aligned with his heart for the promises of God. My, how far we've come. Compare this hard attitude of these leaders of the tribe of Manasseh with their forefathers in the wilderness just about, oh, 40 years ago. Compare their desire to see that God's good things were given to them and to their children and held on to forever. Compare that with the fact that their forefathers outside of Kadesh, when all of God's earthly blessings were paraded before their eyes, they turned up their nose and they said, no thank you. I don't think we want that. I don't think we need that. You can have your Canaan. we'll be fine on our own. We're going to head back to Egypt if you need us. That's where we'll be. Thank you very much. Not these men. Now these men are concerned that the gifts the Lord was giving them would not be lost. And when the Lord hears their desire for his blessings, he says, the tribe of the people of Joseph is right. They ought to be zealous to hold on to these things. And then he addressed their concern. So the answer that he gives them is to add this rather simple command regarding the boundaries of marriage, so far as it goes for land-inheriting women. Uh, Verses 6 and 8, he starts specifically with the daughters of Zelophehad, uh, and then he extends it out with the same statute into the rest of Israel. He says, essentially, neither they nor any other heiresses in Israel shall marry outside the clan of their fathers. You think about it, that's actually an incredible amount of latitude uh, here in this ancient society. And yet the Lord is saying that they can choose for themselves. He says they may marry whomever they wish. The language actually is that same language that shows up famously in numbers. They can choose whoever seems right in their own eyes. It's up to them. It only means that, for example, for the daughters of Zelophehad, they have to choose one of the roughly 23,000 men of the tribe of Manasseh. That way their land and their inheritance will not be forfeit through these unwise marriages. Now, just between you and me, I don't actually think that these daughters of Zelophehad had to be warned against unwise marriages. We've met these faithful women before, haven't we? We don't know a whole lot about them. We don't know much about their background, but we know that they were zealous for the inheritance of their father. They had the same concern that the Lord had for the promises, the same concern that their leaders had for his promises. When they made their request back in chapter 27, they didn't come talking about women's liberation or social advancement. They said to Moses, why should the name of our father be taken away? There's that language again. Why shall it be taken away from his clan just because he had no son? There's no conflict here between these godly women and the leaders who are asking about what to do with their land. They also wanted to make sure that God's blessings were protected. So I don't actually think that the women themselves needed to be warned against unwise marriages. Nevertheless, the Lord told them. And I think that he told them as a way of protecting them from people who weren't so concerned about the promises of God. You know how it happens. Some handsome, enterprising young Israelite comes along, and he's got a great idea. He's got an inheritance of his own. It might be a little bit small. He's got a lot of brothers, and he's not the firstborn. He's got an inheritance of his own. And if he can get in good with these daughters of Zelophehad, well, he can extend his horizons by a whole lot more. Now, in a typical Israelite household, of course, the... The young girl's father would have something to say about that. The other men in the household would have something to say about that kind of arrangement. But by virtue of who these women are, they are inheriting women. Without a father and without brothers, there is no paternal authority to watch over them and protect them. And so where there is no earthly father to care for the daughters of Israel, the Lord steps in to be their protector. It's true that he does it by slightly restricting their freedom, by giving them laws, by giving them commandments. But he gives them laws in love and mercy. He gives them laws in compassion to keep them from giving up the blessings that he's given to his people. To keep others from stealing those blessings away from them. So sure, there's probably somebody somewhere gritting their teeth and grumbling under their breath about misogyny and paternal oppression. right? But this is not about an abuse of power. This is about God's faithfulness. His faithfulness, quite frankly, not just to these women, but to all of his people. So the leaders of the tribe of Gilead come with their twofold anxiety over what's going to happen with the land. The Lord answers with a twofold declaration of his intent. You notice the way that it is almost repeated verbatim, verses 7 and verse 9. Verse 9 says, so no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. I know that it comes to us in the form of a commandment. It is another one of these Old Testament laws, right? I know it looks like one more rule on top of another bunch of rules, but what looks like a commandment really is a promise in disguise. We've seen this before in Numbers. Back in chapter 15, immediately after the Lord condemned that Exodus generation, they rebelled against him, and they did not want, want what he gave them. And so he sent them out into the wilderness to die in the desert for 40 years. He said, not a single one of those who came out of Egypt will set foot in the land that I'm giving to my people. And then verse uh, chapter 15 steps in right after Kadesh. It steps in with a bunch of boring laws. Right? Boring old laws about sacrifices and offerings. Right? Wrong. Immediately after the debacle at Kadesh, chapter 15 steps in with the most wonderful, most exciting, most exhilarating laws any Israelite could have imagined. Because the Lord begins that chapter by saying, now when you do come into the land, this is what you're going to give me of the abundance I'm going to give you. It was a commandment, but it was a commandment that came with a promise. The same thing happened in chapter 18 right after they had not learned their lesson at Kadesh, they continued the rebellion of Korah in chapter 16 and the budding of the uh, the staff of Aaron in chapter 17. All the tribes thought that they didn't need priests and Levites to stand as mediators between them and God's holiness. And what happens? Well, the fire of God comes out from the tabernacle, consumes some of the people and advances this plague until Aaron stands the gap between the living and the dead. And then here comes chapter 18 with a bunch of laws about the duties that the priest and the Levites shall maintain throughout all their generations. It's a commandment that comes with a promise. The Lord will not neglect the needs of his people. He will show up and he will continue to do for them what they need. You see that repeated several times throughout the book of Numbers. And so we see it repeated here as well. Well, the people come to the Lord with their anxieties about the future, and the Lord gives them one more set of laws. But it's a commandment that comes with a promise. Every tribe shall hold on to the inheritance of their fathers. What does it mean? Well, it means that when God's people come to him with concerns and hang-ups, worries about whether his word can be trusted the Lord does two things first he receives them gently like a loving father second he reminds them slowly and deliberately that his plans have not changed in the midst of their struggles he reminds us that our circumstances are not a challenge to his goodness that our doubts are not an obstacle to his ability, and he has chosen good for those who love him, and he will not allow his goodness to be abandoned. Now that brings us at last to the end of this chapter and to the close of our time in the book of Numbers. And it's here where I think we have to do a bit of translation out of the old covenant context and into the new. Specifically, when we're talking about land and inheritance and all these possessions, specifically, here is where we need to remember that the Israelites' enjoyment of the land of promise is itself an outward expression of their covenant with the Lord, but it is not the covenant itself. Let me restate that. Sometimes we fall into the habit of, Bad habit of mistaking the presence of Israel inside of Canaan with the bond of spiritual salvation that God has established between himself and his people. And so we look through the history of Israel and they say, well, well where are they? Are they in or are they out? Are they inside the land or are they outside of the land? Are they enjoying God's favor or are they recipients of his wrath? And it seems like a simple way to handle things because this promise of land is contingent. and The Lord gives it to them and he says, when you obey, you'll stay and you'll flourish and when you do not, I will remove you. And we've seen that as you look through the history. We saw it in numbers. They came to the edge of the land and they rebelled and the Lord said, out into the wilderness you go. And then a generation later, here comes this new people with faith in their hearts and he says, now's the time. Let's bring you in. Let's establish you in the land. Let's settle you down. Later on, much later on, when Israel sins again against the Lord, he drives them out of the land all over again. And then after the experience of exile had appropriately humbled them, he brings them back in to rebuild and to reestablish their faith. And we tend sometimes to evaluate the old covenant church based on the outward experience of God's earthly blessings. Because it seems like a simple way to handle things. Except that it misses the point. Think about it. If we equate the saving relationship of God with the presence of Israel in the land, well then by the time we get to the close of Numbers, God is no longer the hero of the story. Instead, it's these faithful women that we find. The daughters of Zelophehad, right? Those wonderful, godly, righteous women, verse 10 tells us, did as the Lord commanded. They married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. If the enjoyment of the land equals the salvation of the Lord, then the daughters of Zelophehad are the heroines of the story because they're the ones who cracked the code. They figured out the struggle of faith and obedience. And because they did well enough, then they and and those who came after them got to enjoy all the wonderful things of God. Now, if that interpretation doesn't sit well with you, it can only be because you know the rest of the story. And I'm not talking about the rest of the story as in what comes next, right? Right? Not the Joshua and the, and the, uh, and the conquest, not, the, uh, not all of that other stuff with the kings and the judges. I don't mean the rest of the story as in the end of the story. I mean the rest of the story as in the beginning of the story. I mean the part where the Lord of Heaven speaks to a man named Abram while he's still walking around with his family of idol worshippers in Ur of the Chaldees. And the Lord shows up to this man that didn't know him from Adam He shows up, pow, out of nowhere, and he says, Abram, I've set my love on you. I've chosen you, though you didn't know me. And I'm going to bring you out of where you are, and I'm going to put you in a new place, and I will be God to you and to your children after you, and I will make you a multitude, and I will give you the land of your sojournings to be a perpetual possession. Now, it's hard to see it from where we are at the end of Numbers. It's it's hard to see it through these obedient daughters, right? Because we we can't recognize it once we've gotten so many years and so many commandments and, and so many mercies down the line of God's faithfulness. But that's where the beginning of this possession lies. It starts with a man that the New Testament says was as good as dead. And despite his near-death existence, the Lord still speaks his gracious promises of faithfulness into his life anyway. And God speaks his promises, and Abram believes the Lord, and his faith is counted, it's imputed as, counted as though it were righteousness. And so the point is that when we look back in the book of Numbers and we see that it ends with a cliffhanger, we are not supposed to turn at the last minute and praise the obedience of God's people. We are supposed to look with wonder and awe at the God who steps into our human struggle, who enters into the mess that we're in and still declares his goodness and his blessings anyway. We are supposed to praise the God who gives life to the dead. Who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Because actually that's the real end of the story. Christ Jesus, the offspring of Abraham. Heir of the promises of God. Hung on a cross in Roman occupied land of promise. He hung there and he bled. And he breathed his last, crying out, to die." And when he said it was finished, he meant the struggle of faith. The perfect, sinless, flawless obedience of the only servant of God who never swerved for a nanosecond from the commandments of God. He never once doubted the goodness of God's promises. He never once harbored a thought of burning animosity. He had no selfish ambition for his own plans at worldly achievement. He never once stopped loving the Father with heart and soul and mind and strength perfectly and completely. He never worried that his labors might end up as a waste. Folks, when you think of the passion of the Christ and his sacrifice, do not shrink it down to the 12 hours that happened right before he breathed his last. He fought the fight of faith and he struggled perfectly for 33 years of flesh and blood in obedience and submission. Why? So that at the end, for the joy set before him, he might endure the cross that your disobedient sin could never shoulder. And then wouldn't you know it, three days later, and he was back. He came back in living and breathing proof of the faithfulness of God, the Lord who raises the dead, raises men like Abraham, raises men like Lazarus, By the grace of God, raises all the members of the church triumphant who have fought the good fight, who have finished the race, who now wait to see the end of the story when Christ will return in splendor to receive His people completely, His perpetual possession, the Scriptures tell us. We come to Numbers and we keep looking for what God's people are going to receive. Do you consider what Jesus Christ Himself received? He's made us more than conquerors. He's given us the promise of inheriting the land, but he inherits his people. Never to lose them. Never to let go of them. Never to have them be taken away. Do you have any idea what it is, brothers and sisters, to have anything in your life that you know for certain can never be taken away? We live in a world of constant flux. Your health can be gone in a moment. Every relationship you've ever had, your house can go up in flames. Your memory can fade little by little so you don't even know that it's happening. Everything in this life can be lost. Do you have any idea what it is to receive something that can never be taken away? Well, in Christ Jesus, we receive a perpetual possession An eternal inheritance kept for you, unfading, undefiled in the heavens. But you know what he receives? The people that can never be lost. Can never be forfeit. Never be surrendered. So numbers ends on a bit of an anticlimax, and that's okay. It's because it's not the end of the story. Not yet. But it's one more reminder to God's struggling people to keep looking forward in faith. To keep trusting in the faithfulness of God while we wait for the inheritance that he has prepared for us. That's the message of Numbers. May he give us grace to live it out daily with him. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you that you have given us the seal of inheritance by the grace of your Holy Spirit. We pray that for all those that you know as your own, we would find the grace of believing that we have been made Christ's forever. We pray also for those who don't yet know that you would seal them as well, give them that perpetual possession in Christ the Lord, and make them part of his heritage to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to a table that proclaims to us the love of God for undeserving sinners. Those of us who have no right to claim any uh, goodness and possession with the Lord because we are still strugglers, all of us. Whether redeemed and regenerate or whether still waiting, All of us struggling, and we don't come by our own uh, piety, by our own righteousness, but the table set before us reminds us that there is fellowship anyway, in spite of our unrighteousness, right in the face of our impiety. It shows us that Christ has done all that we could not to give salvation to his people. This table is a reminder that there's fellowship with him. It is a foretaste reminding us of an inheritance that can never be lost and a fellowship that can never be taken away. This table is set with signs and symbols that show us the body and blood of Jesus Christ, symbolized to us in bread and a cup, reminding us of his very real body which was broken and his very real blood that was poured out so that we might come to him in faith and receive his promises. This table is for all those who know what it is to trust in the Lord Jesus those who have professed publicly that he is their savior. If you've done that, and we ask you to come. We invite you, we call you to come. Eat and drink by faith the promises of God for all his people. If you've not yet done that, we ask you to allow the elements to pass. Don't eat and drink, as Paul says, judgment upon yourself, but consider whether the Lord might be calling you to himself today as well. We read in Mark's Gospel, that as Jesus was eating with his disciples, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer.